Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So the headline in the Wall Street Journal front page today, China's message to America, we're an equal now. And uh, that sent me scrambling looking at uh, economic numbers over the years as I lay in bed at night. Isn't this a good way to spend your time? But uh, as China is the biggest world's economy by some measures, by by the measure most people use, their second, but growing and catching up to us every single day. As going back over the decades, how recently China is in the in the, in that position? It's absolutely amazing. Um, uh, looking at this list of the biggest economies, they've got the top ten listed in 1980. China doesn't even show up in the top ten. Wow, including countries like Canada and Italy. China can't even compete with Canada. I'm not sure I like the way you're saying Canada. Going back very many years. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And how did they <clears throat> grow that fast? With the help of the rest of the world, primarily the United States, letting them cheat and giving them all kinds of tax breaks and just doing, doing anything you possibly could to give them a head start. We trying to grow. We fed them and jabbed them full of hormones like a state fair hog to try to get them big and involved in the world economy, and then they would liberalize and become a Jeffersonian democracy. Of course, they would. Even in the year two thousand, when we were uh, we were far and away the number one economy, Japan was number two, China was third, but like less than half of Japan, hmm. and barely ahead of Germany and France and Britain. As recently as two thousand, and what's the population of Japan? I'm saying I don't 120 know. million. I don't know off the top of my head. Maybe but, Sean could check. Um, but China's growth is so fast. It's absolutely amazing. And as they kept pointing out in this Wall Street Journal piece, go ahead, Sean. Well, what was your guess? Mm, why don't you just go ahead and tell me what it is? Well, because you were really close. I was. I just wanted 120 to... million. 121, I'm going to say. 126. Oh, well, they've had several babies recently. Um, I, I wasn't invited to the shower. <laughs> One of the points that made in the Wall Street Journal that previous leaders, uh, primarily Deng, but others, their idea was bide our time, keep our head down, grow, don't make any noises, don't let people know what we're doing here. All along, their whole point has to, has been to become the dominant economic and military force in the world and make the rest of the world live by their rules. That's, oh, been, that's been their plan since 1949, but they did a really good job of hiding it from the world. And uh, Xi's the first one to, to to come out and say, you know what? We're just going to let you know what we're up to. We're going to dominate y'all, and there's nothing you can do about it at this point, so get used to it. Well, I appreciate the candor. Uh, a couple of points. Number one, Deng is pronounced dung, which brought me great delight during his entire uh, reign. And secondly, Jack, you're coming off as a doomsday clown. Oh, yeah, okay. I so, only... <laughs> so from the Wall Street Journal quote. <laughs> from the Wall Street Journal piece, the U.S. Co- is committed to helping Taiwan preserve its autonomy. This is going to the, be the flashpoint that gets us all into a war. As uh, we've got a headline today, where did where did I put that? China sends twenty five warplanes into Taiwan's airspace. Um, they are making it clear that uh, the goal of having Taiwan be part of China is one of their uh, major accomplishments. They're going to get in, in, in soon. So the Wall Street Journal jumps into that with the U.S. is committed to helping Taiwan preserve its autonomy. And we've got pledges going back to 1979. And the Biden team trumpets its plan to strengthen economic and political links to Taipei, the capital of Taiwan. Mr. Xi has made reunification with Taiwan, which Beijing regards as a breakaway province, a big part of his China dream, which we've talked a lot about of national revival. 
China's foreign ministry says of Mr. Yang's Anchorage warning, that was back up in the meeting from a couple of weeks ago when Abe Lincoln met with the, the people, <laughs> met with the people from China, not Abe Lincoln with the beard and the hat. He had nothing to do with uh, it. You saw the confusion on my face. If only he were available. <laughs> Um, and they lectured us about what bad people they uh, we are. But the, their warning included the Chinese, uh, or the, um, uh, I'll just read it from the Wall Street Journal. China's foreign ministry says of Mr. Yang's Anchorage warning, the Chinese side pointed out that the Taiwan issue is related to China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and China's core interests. There is no room for compromise. No room for compromise is a pretty blanket statement. <laughs> so a little room. No room. And we Just a teeny bit of room? We really don't have room for compromise if we're going to stay with our agreement from 1979. Right. And, uh, you know, the noises made indicate that we will. Although noises don't mean a lot when the uh, rubber meets the road. Yeah. Who knows? Soon after the Alaska meetings, Mr. Xi inspected Fujian, the Fujian province across the strait from Taiwan. Chinese airplanes in recent weeks have stepped up incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone, including just this weekend with the 25 warplanes. I got this story in my hand. That is, uh, well, that's provocative. Admiral Phil Davidson of the United States, who heads the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, warned the Senate Arms Committee earlier in March that China could try to take control of Taiwan by the end of the decade, perhaps in as little as six years. China might act rashly, says a senior U.S. official, because of an exaggerated belief that the U.S. is a declining power. And whether it's true or not, if they believe we are, they might make them act. Relations between the countries plummeted during the Trump's administration after both sides fought a two-year trade war to a wary truce. The U.S. president blamed Beijing for unleashing the coronavirus. Because they because did. Because they freaking did. The whole world blames them. And this is the Wall Street Journal. China rejected the charges and labeled Secretary of State Mike Pompeo a doomsday clown. Not the only DC in the room, I might add. I um, I hired a doomsday clown for my son's birthday party one time, and it just... <laughs> all the kids were crying. Kids were crying. Did not go over. They didn't even eat their cake and ice cream. How unhappy does an eight-year-old have to be to not eat their cake and ice cream? I remember you talking about that at the time. The doomsday clown, you. He said he was going to make balloon animals, but he just made balloon mushroom clouds, <laughs> balloon ICBMs, then a balloon killer virus, which was prescient. Don't don't hire a doomsday Look, kids, clown. Life's short that you work pretty much all of it and then you die. All right. Any questions? <laughs> it's your doomsday clown. Exactly. With his size 15 red shoes and his... <laughs> Doom. (laughs) Back to the Wall Street Journal. After President Biden's election, academics and officials in Beijing reached out to America contacts to try to figure out whether the new administration would change course. They were quickly discouraged. Even before Mr. Biden took office, Chinese diplomats sought to schedule a high-level meeting between the two sides. People close to the matter say Biden officials never approved the request and instead repeatedly talked about working with allies to confront China. China's concerns were reinforced in January when when Mr. Biden's choice for Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, used his confirmation hearing to declare that China had committed genocide against Uyghur Muslims in the northwest region of Xinjiang. you got to give the Biden administration points for that, folks. Yeah, you got to be fair. Do. Yep. China has called the charge the lie of the century, which is a, a heck of a thing to say. The Biden team shares its predecessor's view. I like the way they keep saying predecessor instead of Trump. The Biden team shares Trump's view of China as America's greatest military, technological, and economic challenger. From the new administration's perspective, Chinese provocations never never ceased. 
Beijing cut off imports from Australia over its call for an investigation into the origins of the COVID. Wow, just calling for an investigation gets you hammered by the dragon. Yeah, they stopped allowing uh, Australian wine, for instance, to come into the country because Australian leaders wanted to know, hey, where'd the COVID come from anyway? Total ban on delicious koala jerky. Skirmished with India over the country's Himalayan border and sought to intimidate Philippines and Vietnam ships in the South China Sea. Before that Alaska meeting a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. signaled a muscular approach. And I didn't know this behind-the-scenes maneuvering. And Biden, uh, the Biden team has not been getting much credit from the right for this. President Biden met online with the leaders of India, Australia, and Japan. Mr. Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, flew to Tokyo and Seoul to confer with security counterpoints and insisted that uh, Mr. Yang and Wang fly to Alaska for the U.S.-China session rather than meeting in Asia. So Biden had his top guys in China's backyard meeting with people that we say are part of standing up to China. And when China said, we want to meet with you, even though we're right there, we say, hey, why don't you come to Alaska and meet with us? Come mm. to our country. Uh, we're busy. It's, you know, that's, that's, that's a gesture. Boy, it's, it's getting a little, uh, dogs sniffing each other in the parkish as uh, deciding who is actually dominant. You say you're an equal. Let's see. The day before the Anchorage meeting, the U.S. expanded sanctions against two dozen Chinese officials over the repression of Hong Kong's pro-democracy protesters. Some U.S. foreign policy experts thought the Americans went overboard, including Jeffrey Bader, a senior China official in the Clinton and Obama administrations, now a senior fellow at Brookings, who said, the more you assert you're not a declining power, the less convincing you are. Mm, I don't know if I believe that or not. Yeah. What do you think? Iffy. I don't know. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. Uh, Mr. You Wang. have to make it. Listen, you don't want to be all talk and no action. Obviously, big talk and then fail to live up to it. On the other hand, in international diplomacy, you do have to make your intentions clear. Uh, leaving doubt is almost never helpful unless you're bluffing. And how is it just big talk when you're clearly the world's number one nuclear power? I don't, I don't understand that. If I'm the biggest, well, toughest guy in the room, is it big talk? Nobody's going to nuke anybody, though. I um, really believe that. So it's about conventional arms and will to use them. Mr. Wang, the foreign minister, met his Russian peer in late March, prompting the nationalist Chinese newspaper Global Times to headline, China, comma, Russia to break U.S. hold on world order. Oof. Then he traveled to the Middle East and signed that stuff with Iran that we talked about last week. So they're getting cozy with Russia and Iran. It's a high-stakes gamble for the Chinese, says Daniel Russell, Russell, a former Obama-China official. But it's not a gamble. Uh, they are certain to lose. So both sides talking very, very big, being very, very prod- provocative. I don't see how this possibly ends peacefully. Not entirely peacefully, no. This is one of those situations where there's about five different outcomes, and at least three or four of them are equally likely. It's just it's a question of which way the wind blows, give, which way events can break. Can you give you the short version of what you think they are? Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, I mean, major conflict over the South China Sea. Unlikely. But, uh, you know, uh, going overboard, provoking Taiwan, us uh, spanking them hard economically speaking, them acting out economically, that could absolutely happen. Uh, a trading of ordnance somewhere in the South China Sea, uh, minor kind of feeling. How do they react? How do we react? That could absolutely happen. And guys could die. Ships could go down. And then there will be a hastily called international peace conference, etc. 
but tensions will remain. There are all sorts Boy, of possibilities. The world is not used to that sort of thing. It's been a long time since major powers have sunk ships. Yeah, yeah. The whole Russia-China thing is really interesting, just because there have been a number of little groupings like that through the years. And, oh, yeah, we need to take a break pretty quick. But um, just whenever there's a dominant world power, strange bedfellows will get together to counter that power. And the minute they no longer need to be together, they'll flake. I mean, we saw it with the Soviet Union and the uh, the Chinese a handful of times in the 20th century. So the whole Russia-China thing, again, strange bedfellows, we'll just have to see. Plus, Putin is getting near to 70 years old. So that's a huge He's question mark. He's the sexiest man in Russia. He just won that award last week. That's a good point. He'll probably outlive us all, too. I mean, you see him shirtless on a rhinoceros. You know, that is a man full of the zest of life. Come on. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. St. John's professor allegedly fired for reading racial slur from a Mark Twain book. Uh, Hannah Fishthal said she was unaware of how racial politics have exploded at universities around the country. Well... She's older. She's quite a bit older, and so she's probably not, you know, paying attention to the very latest social trends on Twitter or whatever. But she was unaware that any mention of the N-word is going to do you in. So she's a St. John's University professor, allegedly been fired for reading a passage containing an N-word from Mark Twain's anti-slavery novel, Puddinghead Wilson, in her literature of satire class. She's teaching a literature of satire class to, in theory, some of our brighter minds in America to try to understand how that whole thing works. And is reading one of the great pieces of literature against racism and slavery. Been teaching there for 20 years, uttered the N-word once during a remote class back in February after she first explained to students the context of the word And she said she hoped it would not offend anyone. Mark Twain was one of the first American writers to use actual dialect, she said. His use of the N-word is used only in dialogues as it could have actually been spoken in the South before the Civil War when the story takes place. All perfectly grown-up description of what was going on at the time, how it was, uh, you know, a a move forward for literature, etc., well, and to write in any other style would be jivey and stupid. Can you imagine if, you know, the the great Russian uh, authors writing about the, the pre-revolutionary times had not used the term Bolshevik and instead used the term jive turkey or something like that? I mean, it's just, it would be idiotic. The day after the class, she got an email from a student who said she had to abruptly leave the call because of the use of the inappropriate slur. It was unnecessary and very painful to hear the student wrote. Then you shouldn't be in college because you're not enough of a grown-up. Your brain can't handle the university-level uh, education. You shouldn't be at a university if you can't handle it. We've taught our children mental illness. The teacher, the professor, apologized to the student in an email and set up a private discussion online about the issue uh, to try to you know smooth things over. No, forget it. That's not enough. Sorry, you got to be canceled. Six students responded, including the initial complainant. Two defended the uh, the use of the N-word. The rest said the N-word should not have been used. And uh, she has, in theory, been fired for that. The university is claiming that's not the reason she was fired, but come on, Please. let's grow up. Yeah, yeah. That's shocking, and it's scary, and it's idiotic, but logic has nothing to do with it. Power, it's all about power. 
We do not expect you to follow these laws. We expect you to not follow them, and therefore you are a criminal. And we can take your job. We can take your power. Critical race theory isn't a theory. It's a, a series of tools. She's it's a, a series of weapons. This particular professor is the daughter of Holocaust survivors, by the way, and she said, I never thought this would happen to me. I'm one of the last people who should be accused of racism. I know where it leads, and I know where it ends. Every class I teach teaches the evils of stereotyping. But she said as the Red Guard dragged her in the street and beat her finally to death. Hey, lefties, if like you're a normal, normal, classic liberal lefty, you need to fight back against this. Oh, yeah. Because we can't. Those of us on the right can't. We're just, well, of course, racists want to use the N-word. No, you need to fight for it and say, look, having a discussion of a word is not racism. Let's be grown-ups here. Yeah, that's just, it's astounding. But, is and get, again, read anything Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt have written um, uh, about how we have taught our children mental illness. We've taught them that they should fall to pieces if anybody hurts their feelings in the slightest. That if a magic incantation, a magic word like the N-bomb is used, they should be devastated. And if they're not, they're a racist. How did the universities themselves not stand up to it and just say, look, I'm sorry you're offended. We're not going to fire the university professor. We talked to her, but we're not going to fire her. Because the rabid mob will come for them next. It's cowardice. In some cases, it's a lack of understanding of what's happening. They just hear, racist, anti-racist? Well, I'm an anti-racist, because that sounds good. Just, it's a combination of ignorance and cowardice. Armstrong and Getty. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. And now, here's Armstrong and Getty. Learn something very important about myself. Oh, big scandal in baseball we need to talk about. But uh, learned uh, something for sure uh, yesterday. What is my go-to, totally unconscious swear word when I get hurt? <laughs> Everybody has theirs. I'm an and SOB guy, I think. Really, that's that's a fine one. So I was uh, I was dealing with some cardboard boxes yesterday. I was uh, rearranging some stuff, moving, uh, unpacking this, and blah blah blah. And uh, I gave myself one of those cardboard uh, paper cuts that, as I could feel uh, it going in and slicing, I don't want to hear this. I looked down to make sure the tip of my finger hadn't fallen off. <laughs> We got a bleeder. Oh, that's awful. (laughs) So anyway, and uh, as it turns out, my oath of choice is a a compound term that rhymes with other trucker. Popularized by, uh, what's his name in uh, Pulp Fiction? (laughs) In many of his roles. Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson's favorite term. Had no idea. And I uttered it at such a volume and pitch that my wife came running to make sure I hadn't been killed. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, the good news about fingers is, though, they get a lot of blood flow, uh, and so it takes a while to stop. They they heal really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Remember when I smashed the bejesus out of my finger in the garage door? I I thought I'd done permanent serious damage to myself. I was amazed how well it healed. Yeah, yeah, the amazing human body. Oh, which reminds me, uh, they, they have just approved the first drug that slows the progress of Alzheimer's disease. Ooh. I yeah. That's big. Yeah. I just saw the headline come across in the Wall Street Journal, but yeah, that could be, 
And that could be a wonderful thing in the face of just a, a disease of unspeakable sadness and tragedy and the rest of it. So I'm a big baseball fan. I love the baseball. And uh, I had been unaware of this giant scandal. This should be the biggest scandal in sports, writes Sports Illustrated. To understand the fiasco of baseball's 2021 season, which people around the game describe as sullied by rampant cheating to a degree not seen since the steroid era, to, to, to understand it, all you have to do is pick up a ball and then try to put it back down. Pitchers are applying sticky stuff to the balls. In, so it's so rampant, they estimate that like something like 80 to 90 percent of the pitches thrown, 89, 80 to 90 percent of pitchers are using it in some capacity, said one uh, baseball player. Do an image search on sticky stuff on the balls, see if you can find anything that would... Uh... Image search? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, allergies. Uh, one ball made its way into uh, an NL... Nothing coming up there. Maybe if I do comma baseball. Uh, one ball made its way into a National League dugout last week. Players took turns touching a palm to the sticky material, coating it, and lifting the baseball, adhering to their hand into the air. Without gripping it, just a flat hand, lifting the ball up. So what's the advantage of sticky stuff on the ball? Uh, we'll get to that. And another one, corralled in a different dugout, had clear enough fingerprints indented in the goo that opponents could mimic the teacher's, the uh, pitcher's grip. A third one was so sticky that when an opponent tried to pull the glue off, three inches of seams came off with it. What? Yeah. Uh, the sticky stuff helps increase spin on pitches, which in turn increase their movement, making them more difficult to hit. Major League pitchers, well, Major League Baseball, uses nothing but brand new baseballs. I mean, they're rubbed up with this special stuff that takes some of the shine off of them and everything. But it's not like in Little League where a ball would get beaten up and a little tattered, a little softened. They're all slippery. Um, and, yeah, I've, you know, partly because I know a guy in Major League Baseball, I have plenty. In, in fact, I have one in the studio somewhere. Um, uh, uh, Major League Baseball, they're slippery. And to get the max spin on it, you just have to get your fingers a little sticky. And that's contributed to, um, oh, and so they can make the, the pitches break more, increasing their movement, makes them harder to hit. That's contributed to an offensive crisis that's seen the league-wide batting average plummet to a historically low 236. Really? I didn't it know that. It would really help if they gave, like, two years ago's batting average, which I don't know. Historically low batting average. I did not know that. Yep. Sports Illustrated spoke with more than two dozen people. Most of them requested anonymity to discuss cheating within their own organization. From the dugout, players and coaches shake their heads as they listen to pitchers' deliveries. You can hear the friction of the ball spinning in the air. The recently retired pitcher, a recently retired pitcher, likens it to the sound of ripping off a Band-Aid. Is that the ball coming off their hand? So looking like a couple years ago, the league averages were in the around 250. And now they're down 236. That's significant. Uh, yeah, in fact, a Major League team executive says his players have examined foul balls and found the Major League Baseball logo torn straight off the leather. Wow. By the stick on pitchers' hands. So in many clubhouses across the sport, the training rooms become the scene of the crime. Pitchers head in there before games to swipe tongue depressors, which they use to apply their sticky stuff to wherever they choose to hide it. Then return afterward to grab rubbing alcohol to dissolve the residue. So they just uh, they swab their fingers, back their hands or elbow, whatever, and just uh, scratch at it a little bit. And that's something. Putting junk on the balls is old as time, but uses using stickum to increase 
Uh, spin is pretty novel. One a, uh, American League reliever who says he uses a mixture of sunscreen and rosin. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Huh. Interesting. Huge scandal. What to do? What to do? Check their balls. <laughs> <clears throat> Again, boy, allergies this time of year are terrible. I'm not laughing at your idiocy, I assure you. So, Sean, did you look up Edgerton Ryerson? Who is this person? Uh, he is uh, Adolphus Edgerton Ryerson, was a Canadian educator and Methodist minister who was prom- a prominent contributor to the design of the Canadian public school system. I wonder what he did wrong. A statue of Edgerton Ryerson on the university campus named after him. Ryerson University. I mean, this is an, an, an entire university in the most gleaming city of Canada, Toronto. A statue of Edgerton Ryerson on the university campus was toppled. Protesters took it to the Toronto Harbor, where it was thrown in. Ryerson University, again, it's right there in the name of the university. Wow. It's what the guy, the, the, the university's named after the guy, released a statement saying the statue will not be restored or replaced. <laughs> Jonathan Kay tweeted this out with a comment saying, wow, outsourcing decisions to a mob is a real time saver. Maybe we can use this method to get rid of trials. Wow, so what the, a great blast. No kidding. So a mob decides, no, this university named for this guy, is the, that's not okay with us. And you take down the statue, throw it in the river, and the university named after the guy says, we won't replace the statue. Obviously, wow. they're coming for the name of the university next, and I would mm-hmm. assume they're going to cave on that, too. Now, I don't know what this guy did. I don't know if he is a colonial colonial. If he was into colonialism, or he uh, had slaves, or I don't know what he did. It was anti-gay marriage 150 years ago. I have no idea what he did, but oh, you know what he did? Uh, let's see. A man who helped create a school system which forcibly assimilated indigenous people. Architect of Indians to be into the school. Which abducted more than 150,000 indigenous children who are not allowed to speak their language. Yeah, and it got worse than that. I was just uh, reading about this. There was a program in Canada that, all right, the indigenous people need to come correct and learn to be real Canadians. So they took them from their homes, put them into these schools, and one of the schools, they just unearthed dozens and dozens of bodies of children who died at this school. Actually sounds like what they're exactly like what they're doing to the Uyghurs in China. Yeah, very Um, similar. Okay, so that's fine. It sounds like he was a bad guy. Then you have a system where somebody petitions for this, and then you have some sort of vote or body that looks into it. You don't have a mob go get the statue and throw it in the river. No, if a mob gets angry enough, they get anything they want in the new, exciting 21st century reality. Florida removed eight, nine Confederate uh, names from schools last month after a month of discussing it. Kept some, got rid of most. Hmm. Uh, but I like that After process. Discussions, you said. Yeah, I don't have any problem with that. You decide for a month that, that that's what you want to do. Now, you know, not everybody's going to agree because they decided for a month in San Francisco and after a tremendous amount of public pressure had to decide to keep Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, for instance. Yeah, well, not every discussion is equal in terms of heap loads of stupid. But that's, that's you know, well, the discussion ended up in the right place then. If a mob had gone and defaced the school, and, uh, you know, changed the name and thrown the statue and blah, blah, blah. That That's not good. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Abraham Lincoln, not Abe Lincoln, 
Anthony Blinken, who is on uh, TV or is testifying before Congress today about a number of situations around the world. He's our current Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham Lincoln, the bearded man on your penny. Yes. New book out about his uh, marriage, specifically about his awful, awful, maybe the worst marriage in the history of U.S. presidents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, tough choice, Mary Todd there. Mm, lovely gal. Nice family. Ooh, probably not. I probably shouldn't have gone there, Abe. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. I mentioned this very briefly yesterday. Wanted to hit you with this because this is some of my favorite writing so far of the year. And it's Matt Taibbi uh, talking about the immediate rejection of the lab leak theory last year just because Trump said it. And he he starts with a discussion of this new trend in journalism where they're they're out and proud saying you don't need to to publish both sides because if one side is clearly good and the other side is evil or misinformation, you, journalists are not obligated to publish both sides, which has long been the uh, the tradition. And here's what uh, Matt Taibbi says, one of the great truth tellers of our time. But uh, objectivity was never about giving equal time and weight to both sides. It's just an admission that the news business is a high-speed operation whose top decision makers are working from a knowledge level of near zero about most things, and at best just making an honest effort at hitting the moving target of truth. I love that, acknowledging Mm -hmm. that especially the hires-up don't know squat about squat. Like fact-checking itself, the on the one hand and the other hand format is just a defense mechanism. These people say X, these people say Y. And because the jabbering mannequins we have reading off our teleprompters actually know jack about it, we'll let the passage of time sort out the difficult bits. And the public used to appreciate the humility of that approach, but what they get from us more often now are sanctimonious speeches about how reporters are intrepid seekers of truth who sleep next to God and gobble amphetamines so they can stay awake all night defending democracy from misinformation. But once you get past names, dates, and whether the sky that day was blue or cloudy, the worst kind of misinformation is in journalism is to be too sure about anything. That's especially true when dealing with complex technical issues, and even more especially when official sources seem invested in eliminating discussion of alternative scenarios of those issues. And then, he says, from the start, the press mostly mishandled COVID-19 reporting. Part of this was because nearly all of the critical issues, mask use, lockdowns, viability of vaccine programs, and so on, were marketed by news companies as culture war narratives. A related problem had to do with news companies using the misguided notion that the news is an exact science to promote the worst misconception that science is an exact science. This led to absurd spectacles like news agencies trying to cover up or denounce as falsehood the natural reality that officials had evolving views on things like the efficacy of ventilators or mask use, etc., etc. I think that's that's really good. And part of the, the pretext to that is he was talking about the whole fact-checking trend. They're desperately trying to not look 100% partisan. Find a way to say we're trying to find the truth because they've abandoned the old, humble uh thing of uh, detractors, on the other hand, disagree and say, for instance, the Wuhan lab think is uh, the Wuhan lab theory is 
reasonable because X, Y, and Z. Just throw that in. Have the humility to throw that in. Even if your chosen government officials say they don't believe it. So this just across from Gizmodo, which keeps an uh, eye on everything tech, kind of in line with what you were just talking about. Twitter may start labeling your tweets based on how wrong you are. One of the many social uh. media companies that's trying to keep up with misinformation, its latest attempt to move the needle looks to be a tiered warning label system that changes based on how wrong you are. Who's determining that? So far, there are three levels of misinformation on tweets. Uh, one label is get the latest. Another is stay informed. And one is labeled misleading. You know, that's funny. We just got a, uh, a note from alert listener Sean who said, I reposted an article you guys posted, critical race theory coming to a school near you. And it's been blocked slash deleted by Facebook. Really? Along with any comments I'd received. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Facebook is now banning any critical discussion of critical race theory. Beautiful. You're freaking evil, Zuckerberg. You are. And I'm sure you'll have me killed in the night. You know, the pillow over my head. One of your, uh, you know, fact checkers. Well, that's fine. So this, keep calling you out. So the this, wrath of Mark. So this woman uh, named Wong, who uh, reverse engineers popular apps to uncover features still in development, shared a screenshot of her efforts experimenting with Twitter's new tier system of how wrong your tweet might be. Ah. For example, she tweeted, snorted 60 grams of dihydrogen monoxide, and I'm not feeling so well now, which triggered a get-the-latest label with information about water. Dihydrogen monoxide, <laughs> the chemical name for water. Right. Yeah. right. When she tweeted, in 12 hours, darkness will ascend in parts of the world, stay tuned, a stay-informed label popped up, prompting users to learn more about the concept of time zones. <laughs> And when she tweeted, we eat turtles eat, therefore we are turtles, Twitter slapped a misleading label on her post, noting that it's a logical fallacy. Well, that's pretty good. Well, fair enough. (laughs) Unless she's a turtle. (laughs) Maybe she was a turtle to begin with. Uh, But that's correlation. Of people claiming to be turtles. (laughs) False, false claims of turtlehood. Unfriggin' believable. <laughs> I'm telling you. Is there any chance that the 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 effort to uh, censor some information doesn't end up being worse than just letting it go? That was like a quadruple negative. I'm it not was. sure what you're asking me. <laughs> uh, all these efforts just seem to be doing more harm than good. Yes, the cure is has so far been far worse than the disease. With with the number one example being what we we're just talking about, the Wuhan lab leak. If the biggest communication companies are gonna immediately jump on what's okay and what's not okay in terms of a theory, wow, that has that has a major influence. You know, we'll never know what it would have been like a year ago. If Facebook, Twitter, and, uh, you know, the rest of the mainstream media had a, had thought, hmm, maybe it leaked out of that Wuhan lab. Let's look into it. Let's, let's, you know, let's follow every lead we get where let's, let's talk to every whistleblower that could possibly come forward. If a whole year ago, what sort of pressure that might have put on China if immediately, um, more information had come out about that. When well, there was still time to even get any of the evidence. Maybe they would have been under enough world pressure to get the WHO in there earlier when they could have actually found anything before the China started destroying all the evidence. 
Right, and given the point that, given the fact that we're at some sort of tipping point between the Western system and the Chinese totalitarian communist system, as the rest of the world looks at which system works better, I mean, that's the impact is far, far beyond a question of calling them out for leaking the uh, Chinese bat flu. I mean, it, the, the impact, the the stakes are enormously high; they're almost incomprehensibly high. And yeah, it, if only. The social media and the Washington Post, who, who just the other day published this story, suddenly the Wuhan lab leak, the- lab leak theory is, seems very credible. No, not suddenly, just suddenly to you. But if all of those people, including social media, had said, okay, here's a letter from 19 scientists saying we don't think it was a lab leak. Let me think. There are like 75 million scientists just in North America. Why don't we ask some other ones? Why don't we be a little skeptical here? And then what you're talking about, Jack, the world could have come together and said to China, you're letting our guys in now, or we are going to presume you unleash this on the world. Imagine how different that would have been. And it was the American media and social media that carried the Chinese communist water for them and ran interference for them at the very time, really the only time an investigation would have been fruitful. Armstrong and Getty.